Let's open our Bibles to Isaiah 29. Isaiah 29. Just a few verses shorter than 28. We want to finish on a timely basis. I want you to understand this chapter as well as I can share it with you, that you can see its lessons, see its judgments, see its warnings. And there is in the middle of this chapter, in verses 9 through 16, a terrible judgment And we are living in the middle of the same thing being poured out upon Christians and churches today. And that is blindness and darkness and shutting them up from wisdom and knowledge. It's a marvelous work. He's turned the world upside down. He said he would do it in this passage, and he's done it. I hope you can remember the slides from a few years ago called Right Side Up in an Upside Down World. And about spatial disequilibrium and getting lost spatial disorientation which can happen in the cockpit of a plane like it did to John F. Kennedy Jr. and which can happen to divers when they dive too deeply and cannot see which direction for bubbles to you know it's too dark for them to see where they are and they can be going when they're weight when they're weightless in the water they can go up as well as they can go down they can sink into the depths and we looked at those two examples then we looked at a number of Bible principles that are being laid aside today and it's described right here in the middle of this chapter as a judgment from God God could judge them with war and God could judge them with blindness and confusion as well but God can also recover and he will recover Judah in this chapter Isaiah chapter 29 For a number of reasons, we understand Isaiah 29 to pertain to Sennacherib and the Assyrians, not Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, and not Titus and the Romans, as some take it that far, but to Sennacherib and the Assyrians, because we have that in the chapter before it. We're going to have it in chapters 30 and 31 as we get into them next Lord's Day. Let me just lay that out first. And then we'll go through it section by section. The first four verses. Woe to Ariel, to Ariel, the city where David dwelt. Add ye year to year. Let them kill sacrifices. Yet I will distress Ariel, and there shall be heaviness and sorrow, and it shall be unto me as Ariel. And I will camp against thee round about, and will lay siege against thee with a mount, and I will raise forts against thee, and thou shalt be brought down, and thou shalt speak out of the ground, and thy speech shall be low out of the dust, and thy voice shall be as of one that hath a familiar spirit out of the ground, and thy speech shall whisper out of the dust. Amen and amen. The first four verses of Isaiah 29, God would judge Jerusalem by war. But it says Ariel. Yes, it does. What in the word does Ariel mean? It's the Lion of God. It's the city of Jerusalem. We know it is Jerusalem because it tells us it is the city where David dwelt. So we know that Ariel equals Jerusalem. If Ariel equals the city where David dwelt, and the city where David dwelt equals Jerusalem, then... Ariel equals Jerusalem. Is that okay? 
We know that it is Jerusalem because the perpetual sacrifices stated were killed there because Jerusalem had the altar. We know that it is Jerusalem because in verses 7 and 8, it concludes with Mount Zion. And so we know that Jerusalem is under consideration. Woe to Ariel, the lion of God. Jerusalem was God's favorite city. Jerusalem was God's protected city, his strong city, his lion-like city. And that's about all we need to worry about the word Ariel. It's Jerusalem. Because the, we just, I just showed you three reasons why the context tells us it's Jerusalem. And here again, we have the word woe to Ariel. Back there in Isaiah 28, we had woe to Ephraim. Now we have woe to Jerusalem because this is Judah. Shalmaneser's gone, having taken the ten tribes captive and dispersing them. But now this is Judah and Jerusalem, as God comes after them like he said he would in chapter 28. You know, it doesn't say the burden of Jerusalem. It says, woe to Ariel. And if you'll remember some of the creative descriptions that we've had for God's judgment, you wouldn't be surprised that we have an Ariel thrown in. A unique name for Jerusalem that is used here in this context several times, nowhere else except the name of a man elsewhere in the Bible. Do you remember 2121, the burden of the desert of the sea? That was a strange description for Babylon. How about 22-1, the burden of the valley of vision? That was about Jerusalem, but it was unusual. It was creative, it was different, and here we have Ariel. Woe to Ariel, to Ariel, the city where David dwelt, exclamation point, there is judgment coming. Add ye year to year, let them kill sacrifices. Go ahead, keep your feast for the next year. Go ahead, keep your feast for another year. Bring your sacrifices to Judah. Let me kill your sacrifices on the altar. It doesn't mean anything to me. And that is one of the great lessons of Isaiah. Ceremonial worship does not satisfy our God. Church attendance does not satisfy our God. He wants our obedience. He wants our diligence. He wants our faithfulness. It started that way in the beginning of the book. Look at Isaiah chapter 1. This is the message, a great message of the book of Isaiah. And it will end up that way in chapter 66. Let me show you. Isaiah 1.10. Hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom. Give ear unto the law of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. These are the Jews. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. And I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he goats. And it goes on from there. He does not care about the outward worship if our hearts are not all his and our lives are not conformed to his rules for them. Look at chapter 66, Isaiah 66. This is such a paramount lesson for us to get, and it's here in Isaiah 29. So he said, Woe to Ariel, to Ariel, the city where David dwelt. Add ye year to year. Let them kill sacrifices. Go ahead and have all those offerings in Judah that my law requires. That isn't enough. Judgment's coming. Woe! Even if you do it for another year, even if you do it for a second year, even if you give me the sacrifices, woe to you, 
is the first verse. Look at Isaiah 66. Thus saith the Lord in verse 1, The heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that ye build unto me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things hath mine hand made, and all those things have been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. Are you poor before God? Are you of a contrite, broken spirit before God? Do you tremble at his word? He'll come to you. This man will I look. He'll bless you. Here are those that have chosen their own ways in the next verse. He that killeth an ox, that's a good thing. Moses' law required it. He that killeth an ox is as if he slew a man. When you bring an ox, that was an expensive gift. Only some could bring such a gift to the Lord. But if you bring it, choosing your own lifestyle, it is like murder on his altar, killing a man. He that sacrificeth a lamb is as if, I'm adding those words from the first clause, he cut off a dog's neck. A dog is an unclean animal. A lamb is a very clean animal. And the Lord says, when you sacrifice a lamb, if you've chosen your own lifestyle, it's like you offered me a dog. He that offereth an oblation, as if he offered swine's blood. Listen to the language. He that burneth incense, as if he blessed an idol. Yea, they have chosen their own ways, and their soul delighteth in their abominations. I also will choose their delusions, and so forth. That's the last chapter. I read the first chapter. It's the book of Isaiah. The warning to each of us to give him our heart and to give him our lives. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, which is the same lesson of the whole Bible. And let's fulfill that. And so the first verse is God warning Jerusalem that it wouldn't matter if they kept up their ceremonial religion for another year. And for those of you that read Psalm 50 last night, you got the same lesson from Psalm 50, that ceremonial religion does not please God. He wants our obedience. Verse 2, yet, in spite of your sacrifices, in spite of you continuing year after year to keep my liturgical calendar given by Moses, yet I will distress Ariel, and there shall be heaviness and sorrow, and it shall be unto me as Ariel. It didn't matter what they did ceremonially. God was going to judge them. God was going to bring heaviness and sorrow into their lives, and that is what everyone that disobeys God can expect from him. He can bless you abundantly and give you peace and fill you with all joy and peace and abounding hope, and he can take it away and make you miserable and sorrowful and distress you. You do not know the depths where he can take you if you want to make light of him and neglect him. And it shall be unto me as Ariel. I'm going to treat Ariel like Ariel has treated me. They've offered sacrifices and killed for me. I'm going to offer sacrifices and kill them for me. I'm going to treat them like Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the place for the killing of sacrifices. I'm going to kill them as a sacrifice. They shall be unto me as Ariel. And I will camp against thee round about, and will lay siege against thee with a mount, and I will raise forts against thee. The mighty army of Sennacherib and Rabshakeh coming into Judah. 
taking 46 fenced cities, using their engines, using their ramps, approaching the city of Jerusalem, and doing whatever they did there to intimidate that city into submission. But then they had to withdraw. And they had to withdraw because the rumor came that Terhaka of the Ethiopians was coming. And so Sennacherib had left the siege of Lachish, had gone to Libna, Rabshaki withdrew, and took the army away. And then we have the letter written and saying, I have to leave right now to take care of some Ethiopians, and they won't be much trouble, and I will be back. And I will do to you everything I have said I will do to you. I hope that you have that little timeline in your minds. Was he able to handle Terhaka? Isaiah 18 and 20? Very easily. They took them captives. The mighty Egyptians and the mighty, the terrible Ethiopians they thought would defend them and they were made captives. So that in Isaiah chapter 20 and verse 6, they grieved that those they looked to for help had been defeated so quickly. As we'll read in just a moment. And so that, that you understand this, we've had this so many times and we have so many more times to have it. And that is to describe Sennacherib with the Assyrians coming against Judah. Verse 4, and thou shalt be brought down. Now this terminology does not require the city to be raised and the people killed except for a few captives to be hauled off to Babylon. It just says you're going to be brought down and then it talks about your speech. You are going to be crushed and the words that you speak are going to be whispering like you have a familiar spirit and it's just a repetition of a lot of verbs about speaking quietly because you've been brought down and humbled. Let me read it, then I'll give you an example. Thou shalt be brought down, and thou shalt speak out of the ground, and thy speech shall be low, out of the dust. You're going to be brought down to the ground, you high and haughty city, you bunch of drunkards, as we learned about in chapter 28. And thy voice shall be as the one that hath a familiar spirit, because they just whispered and muttered in private little meetings out of the ground, and thy speech shall whisper out of the dust. And if you remember some of the chapters that we've covered, like chapter 22, the city was just terrified. The city was terrified. They were running up to their rooftops. They had banded together with archers. They didn't know what to do. They were locking their houses because they were so terrified of the Assyrians. Hezekiah sent a letter to Sennacherib at Lachish and said, I've been a bad boy. Tell me whatever price you want me to pay to save from my city being taken. Do you, do you know this? Mm -hmm. 300 talents of gold. Mm -hmm. He took them off the doors of the temple and sent them to Sennacherib. Now the terrible thing is it didn't buy Sennacherib off. As soon as, a, as soon as a king like Sennacherib sees gold coming out of a city, it just whets his appetite a little bit more. Oh boy, I wonder how much more of that they have that I can get my hands on. So he didn't show any mercy to Hezekiah, but there was a delay enough, we believe, a delay enough for Hezekiah to make a few more preparations. But the city was terrified. And so we have a description of that in that fourth verse. Now we come to the next section. Verses 5 through 8. This little, descript this little section here, verses 1 through 8, is one of the shorter and more obscure descriptions of the Assyrians and Sennacherib. I just want to share that with you. It takes a little more 
thinking through some of these descriptive statements. You know, Isaiah 10 calls them, Oh, Assyrian, you're the rod of my anger. Thank you, Lord. We enjoy, we appreciate that. And I, so we know it. We know all of Isaiah 10. And when we get to Isaiah 30, which will be next Sunday, it's got 33 verses. But when we get over to verse 31, it tells us it's the Assyrian that's going to be beaten down. And it's the Egyptians that they were seeking to, not against Babylon, but against Sennacherib. Just like I've mentioned here. So here we go. The next four verses. Moreover, important word. Everything's negative so far. Moreover, the multitude of thy strangers shall be like small dust, and the multitude of the terrible ones shall be as chaff that passeth away. Yea, it shall be at an instant suddenly. Thou shalt be visited of the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquake and great noise with storm and tempest and the flame of devouring fire. And the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel, even all that fight against her and her munition, and that distress her, shall be as a dream of a night vision. It shall even be as when an hungry man dreameth, and behold, he eateth, but he awaketh, and his soul is empty. Or as when a thirsty man dreameth, and behold, he drinketh, but he awaketh, and behold, he is faint, and his soul hath appetite. He's still thirsty. So shall the multitude of all the nations be that fight against Mount Zion. Moreover, in verse 5, moreover is a word that means in addition to, along with, on top of that, the multitude of thy strangers shall be like small dust, and they're going to be killed in an instant suddenly. Now it says, moreover, so it's negative. Because we've just had four verses of negativity. It's negative. And it says, this group, here in this fifth verse, these strangers, this multitude of strangers, are thy strangers. Was, what was the multitude of strangers that was Judah's strangers? Their possession, their friends, their helpers, their auxiliaries. They're mercenaries. You're strangers. It's got to be negative. It can't be the destruction of Sennacherib's army. Because moreover, look at verse, look at the next verse, verse 6. Thou shalt be visited of the Lord of hosts with thunder. This is God still thundering through verse 6. 7 and 8 are merciful. 6 is not. 5 is not. It's God's judgment upon Judah through the Assyrians. But verse 5 is unique because it says, moreover, it's negative, and it says the multitude of thy strangers. What strangers did they have, and what terrible ones did they have? Or have we already read about ambassadors going out to get those that were known to be terrible from their beginning? The Egyptians and the Ethiopians. They were their helpers. They were their strangers. You have brought strangers into this conflict when it was Assyria against you, and I was with you. But you wanted to put your trust in Terhaka of the Ethiopians and the Egyptians with them, like I've already mentioned, and it's in Isaiah 20, verses, there's only six verses there, they will be turned into captives, it'll be an easy defeat by Sennacherib of your helpers. 
And so verse 5, the multitude of thy strangers, your helpers, the Egyptians and the Ethiopians, shall be like small dust, and the multitude of the terrible ones, that great host out of Ethiopia, shall be as chaff that passeth away. I'm going to defeat them so easily with Sennacherib, they will not be able to help you. Yea, it shall be in an instant suddenly. And it's negative. You're thinking of the instant suddenly in the middle of the night that took out 185,000, but that's positive. This is negative. And the next verse is negative. And it's figures of speech of God's judgment against Judah. Thou shalt be visited of the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquake and great noise with storm and tempest and the flame of devouring fire. I am behind Sennacherib and his Assyrians. And I'm going to destroy. And these, these are figures of speech. We have no Bible record of there being literal weather events like this any more than we have literal records of the stars, sun, moon, and constellations not shining in the destruction of Babylon in Isaiah 13. And the moon and the stars not shining in Isaiah 34, which is God's judgment upon Edom. This is common Bible language for destructive fury and power from the Lord. And it would come and it would defeat them so that they would be left helpless again. Let me, let me read that 20th ver chapter in verse 6 to you. Do you remember this? And the inhabitant of this isle shall say in that day, Behold, such is our expectation, whither we flee for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria, and how shall we escape? We picked them to help us, and they went down like nothing. And now we're exposed to them again. And now they're angry. You know, whatever you want to read into it about the danger that Jerusalem now had, because that friend that they thought would help them couldn't help them at all, as Isaiah chapter 20 is all about that. Remember, Isaiah had to walk three years naked and barefoot for a sign of wonder upon Egypt and the Ethiopians. Remember that? Do you remember? Let's, let's keep. Here's why I beg you to review. This would be pretty simple. Things fall into place because we learn things. Right off, right off the bat, we learned God considered Judah Sodom and Gomorrah, and he didn't care about their ceremonial worship. First chapter. Ten verses in. There we, we hit it. And as we come forward, we learn things by the providence of God and its progressive revelation through Isaiah to help us understand some of these chapters. Back to Isaiah 29. You understand verses 1 through 4, the judgment that's going to fall upon them and bring them down very low. And Jerusalem was brought down very, very low until they were huddled in that city, terrified out of their wits. Hezekiah is in there with a letter before the Lord. Look at this letter. What am I going to do, Lord? He had some faith, yes. He put his trust in the Lord, but they were terrified. And it didn't matter what their ceremonial religion was. It didn't matter if they went to church year after year after year. I am going to distress Ariel. And then verses five, verse 5, I am going to take their helpers, their strangers, out of the way. And I am going to visit them with my wrath. Verse 6. Then we have this long statement in two verses in front of the next lesson. The next lesson starts in verse 9. You can see that. Stay yourselves and wonder. And it continues like that all the way through 16. But what do 7 and 8 have to say? And the multitude of all thy nations. Does it say that? No. That was back in verse 5. Thy strangers. This is not their friends. This is their enemies. 
and the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel. Sennacherib and his empire, drawing his soldiers from many nations, as we have seen before. Even all that fight against her and her munition, that is her defenses, and that distress her, shall be as a dream of a night vision. Okay, well, what is Sennacherib and his Assyrians and all those soldiers that he has in his army coming against Jerusalem? How is it going to be like a night vision? How is it going to be like a dream? And we have verse 8 to explain it to us. And the end of verse 8 says, So shall the multitude of all the nations be that fight against Mount Zion. So this is their dream, and this is what it's going to be like. It shall even be as when an hungry man dreameth, and behold, he eateth, but he awaketh, and his soul is empty. Or as when a thirsty man dreameth, and behold, he drinketh. In his dream, he drink, he's drinking, he's guzzling it down, taking away his thirst. But he awaketh, and behold, he is faint, and his soul hath appetite, or is thirsty, because we're dealing with drink. So shall the multitude of all the nations be that fight against Mount Zion. They have in their heads, they have in their plans, they have in their dreams, what are we going to get out of that temple of Solomon in Jerusalem? What kind of money are we going to get? But it's like a man that dreams and is counting cash. He's eating because he's hungry. But it's really not hunger that's the issue here. It's, I want to consume Jerusalem. And so he's got this dream of how much money and how many captives and what prestige he's going to get by taking Jerusalem under two, two different dreams. A dream of being hungry and eating to your satisfaction, but when you wake up, still hungry. I didn't get anything I was planning on. I was sure I had food. I was sure I had drink. And it's been taken away from me. I'm still hungry. I'm still thirsty. So shall it be to all those nations that came. Do you know how Sennacherib went home to Nineveh, his capital? It says he went home shamefaced because his ambition and his military plans were thwarted and he did not get the prize. Where did all the money flee as he came into Judea and terrified all the Jews and took their fenced cities. You know where it went. It went to Jerusalem and its big city walls. It's going to be protected there. That happened in every nation. They would go to where it was safest. And they would go where the army was. And they would go where the archers were. Do you remember some of these things? And so they went to Jerusalem and he's just counting up the spoil. And if you haven't read any history, if you didn't click on any of the links that have been sent to you over the last two months, then you probably haven't read his wall in, of a room in his palace in Nineveh where Sennacherib described in detail what they would, the booty that they would take out of these sieges because that was their goal. Remember, there's two ways for a nation to get rich. Go beat up other nations and take their riches or trade with those nations and take a piece of the action. Have we learned both of those? One's Assyria and one's Tyre. We've learned both of those. So this dream is a positive event that those nations that fought against Ariel, they're going to bring a lot of trouble. They're going to bring Jerusalem down. Verse 3, 
I'm going to camp against you with this army. They're going to bring you down, verse 4. I'm going to wipe out those helpers that you think are going to deliver you. And you're going to be visited by me, and it's going to be one scary episode, and you're going to be terrified. But those nations will not get the prize. They're going to wake up and, re and go back to Nineveh, shamed face. And I have told, you can read Sennacherib's relief wall, 80 feet long, in a room of a palace in Nineveh, restored, where he went through his conquests in Judea, and the 46 fenced cities, and his engines, and his forts, and his ramps. And all he could say about Hezekiah was, I had him locked up like a bird in a cage. <laughs> and then he leaves them. There's no list. There's no list of the stuff he pulled out of Jerusalem because he didn't get it. Because when he wrote that letter, when he was dealing with the Ethiopians and said, as soon as I get rid of these little pests, I'm going to be back to take care of you in every way that I said I would. Hezekiah laid that letter before the Lord, and the Lord said, He will not shoot an arrow. He will not come into this city, and he will not raise a thing against it. On this second go-round, you won't see him. And so he went home shame-faced because he didn't get the prize. Every night he dreamed about it. and I'm making a dream literally when I say that, and it's really not literal. It's his battle plans. He didn't go into Judah without having, I will spend this much and I will acquire this much and it will be worth the effort. It will be worth the expedition. And that was, it was like a dream. It was like a man dreaming, thinking that something happened. You know what it's like. You think something happened. You wake, <laughs> I don't usually wake up thinking that I'm full and finding out that I'm still hungry. I'm waking up wondering why that lion that was chasing me through the woods I couldn't pull the trigger on the gun to kill it because I was asleep. You know, when you're sleeping, your fingers don't work. So, you know, all these dreams that we have. And so the Lord just takes one of those dreams, a dream of acquiring something and thinking you've got it. You have it dead to rights. Everything Sennacherib and Rabshak he said about Jerusalem was absolutely true except for one thing. They mis under they underestimated the God of Jerusalem. Right. Everything else, it was going to be easy. Going to be easy. But they didn't get it. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. If someone's dreaming and planning something against you, just put your trust in the Lord. He can make their dreams turn into a nightmare. Right. He can take their dreams and turn them into vanity and emptiness. So we come to the next lesson, which is a great lesson, an important lesson, and one that's repeated the New Testament three times at least. Listen, th th these verses I'm about to read to you, we are living in the middle of them, and we do not want them to happen to us. And there are some of you that are dealing with family or friends, and you know that it's happening to them. They're being blinded. If you do not obey God with the amount of truth He gives you, he will take away the truth that he's given you. And he will take away the truth you think you have that you don't even really have. You say, where's that taught in the Bible? All the way through the Gospels. Jesus said, uh, the man that's got five pounds, that turned it into ten, enter thou into the joy of thy Lord, be thou ruler over many cities. The man that I gave two pounds to and turned it into four, enter thou into the joy of thy Lord, be thou ruler over cities. The man that I gave a pound to and put it in a napkin and didn't use it, take that pound away from him and give it to the man with ten. 
and throw him into outer darkness where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For here is the principle of my kingdom. The rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And I don't mean financially, I mean in truth. The man who took the five pounds, that's a British pound. Okay, it's not weight. It, well, it is, but it's money. And it's not British. It's a pound. I don't like the talents. You know what, people, people read that and think that it's talents. Oh, well, I can belly dance and I want to use that for the Lord. I want to use my talents for the Lord. And so they think talents. They will, they'll mail you all kinds of junk. I get it all the time. How can you criticize instrumental music when God gave me a talent to play the guitar? Well, I'll write him back about belly, well, dancers. And where do we draw the line about the talents God's given you and how many of them should be used in the public worship of God? To whom much is given, much shall be required, and from him that hath shall be taken away even that which he thinketh to have. It is terrifying, and here I go, I'm going to read it. I'm going to read it. It's called a marvelous thing. God thinks it's marvelous when he can take away from us what we know and he can give knowledge to someone that doesn't know. He was able to make the babes in the time of Jesus Christ smart and he was able to make the wise seminary graduates ignorant. Here we go. Verse 13. No, verse 9. Verse 9. Isaiah 29, verse 9. Stay yourselves and wonder. Cry ye out and cry. They are drunken, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord hath poured out upon you the spirit of a deep sleep, of deep sleep and hath closed your eyes. The prophets and your rulers, the seers, hath he covered. And the vision of all is become unto you as the words of a book that is sealed, which men deliver to one that is learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee. And he saith, I cannot, for it is sealed. And the book is delivered to him that is not learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee. And he saith, I am not learned. Wherefore, the Lord saith, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth, and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men, Therefore, behold, I will proceed to do a marvelous work among this people, even a marvelous work and a wonder. For the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hid. Woe unto them that seek deep to hide their counsel from the Lord, and their works in the dark are in the dark, and they say, Who seeth us? And who knoweth us? Surely, your turning of things upside down shall be esteemed as the potter's clay. For shall the work say of him that made it, he made me not? Or shall the thing framed say of him that framed it, he had no understanding? Amen and amen. If you want to review this particular section, it would be the slides on our website called right side up in an upside down world about spatial disorientation. Do you remember? If you're down deep enough, it is as dark up as it is down in the water. And if you are wearing weights properly set, you are weightless in the water. You do not have any idea what is up or down. Do you remember the terrifying thought of that, of deep diving? 
It's terrifying. There's only one way to find out, and that's to release a little bit of air and see which direction the bubbles go because that's up. Otherwise, you can be flipped completely upside down and you do not know. Like in a plane. If you're not instrument rated in a plane over water where John F. Kennedy Jr. was, the horizon disappears, all becomes black. And if you're under enough throttle, going up pins you in the back of your seat just like going down. You know, there isn't an unlimited speed for going down. It only goes so fast going down. No idea. He went straight into the water. Couldn't see it. Because he was not instrument rated to look there on the dash of that plane and know that he was diving straight into the water. Do you know how long it took them to try to find DNA? That was one ugly accident. That wasn't skipping along the water and the plane sinking with your bodies in the seats. That was annihilation. Because hitting water at that speed is like hitting concrete at that speed. Now, all of that was to say, and I don't like telling stories like, I, I did that night with those slides, and I guess I did just now, but I don't usually do it. The bubbles. When we release a little bit of oxygen and the bubbles go up, ah. How do we know when we're right side up in an upside down world? Th these are our bubbles. Remember that? These are our bubbles. How are we instrument rated? We have Bible quizzing Amen. and we learn the Bible because this keeps us from spatial disorientation in an upside down world. Why is the world upside down? God turned it upside down. Our God in two chapters can give agricultural genius to men that may not even know how to read back then. And at the same time, men that know how to read that went to seminary, he takes away from them their understanding of their own book. That's our God. Amen. Why does he do it? He told us exactly why he did it. Verse 13, and this is what Jesus quoted. Verse 13, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. Two, th three things they do. Three things. They say they love God. They say they love God. They're not passionate about it. Their heart's taken away, and their form of religion is one of their own invention. The fear, their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. And so they have religious rules. Attend church. Pay your tithe. Do this. Do that. Let's go over it again. They say they love God. I haven't baptized anyone yet that didn't say that. But they're not passionate about it anymore. Their heart is, far, their heart is away. Their heart's on their job. Their heart's on money. Their heart's on kids. Their heart's on family. Their heart's on a spouse. Their heart's on a house or whatever. Their passion's taken away from me. Third, they measure, they measure their religion and they measure their godliness by their own inventions, by rules of men, by precept of men. You know, the Jews had all their precepts with their little ties of their, mint, of their herb garden, and Jesus ripped them over and over for their ceremonial religion. That's why it happens. Can we be guilty of this in our church? 
Absolutely. Can we get in here and sing, oh, how I love Jesus, and have our hearts attached to other things other than Jesus Christ, and we set up rules that make us feel spiritual and good. Even if they're from the Bible. I am sick of your burnt off, even from the Bible. But these are rules taught by men, so they're distortion of Bible religion. Lord, save us from it. He can blind us. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because you have family or friends, and we've been through this for the 35 years I've been in the ministry to see people blinded and no longer believe what they once believed. I have seen men say, that is my favorite doctrine. That is the doctrine that I love the most. Deny it in just a little bit of time because God blinds them. He can do that to us so easily. Where did baby sprinklers come from? Do you think somebody invented baby sprinkling babies and calling it a Christian baptism that was a pagan and just pulled it out of the clear blue sky? Or were those immersers that got into a situation where, where they didn't have deep water? And so they said, well, just sprinkling a little bit in the head should be okay. It's H2O and it's a body. And then mommies keep coming to the priests. Well, that's an error right there. Mommies keep coming to the priests and saying, you know, all the babies are dying. What are you going to do about my baby if it dies? Well, we'll baptize it as soon as it's born. Catholicism is a religion of women. Women love Catholicism. It takes care of their babies, and it takes care of their parents when they're dying in a sickbed because the priest comes in and gives them extreme unction called last rites. From birth to death. And you know, if you're a good Catholic, you will have figured out that there's ways for intrauterine baptism. Type it into a Google search box so that you can see the instrument. These are precepts taught by men. What do we need to protect ourselves? We need to say that we love God and have a heart backing it up that truly loves Him, and we keep His precepts, not the precepts of men. We want to keep all of His precepts. These verses here, can I take you through them right now? Sure. What, what are we going to get out of these verses for ourselves? Right. This can happen to us. Mm-hmm. How can there be Baptist churches with transvestite, transgendered pastors? Where did that come from? How could it happen? How could someone be so blind? How can anyone watch Benny Hinn for more than five minutes and think there's one bone in his body with integrity? How? This right here. It's a marvelous thing. Marvelous. Taking away wisdom from men. Can't understand the Bible. Can't understand true religion. Can't understand the fear of the Lord. We're messed up in America. And it's by design. God's design. Look at where it says in verse 14, I will proceed to do a marvelous work. This isn't the school system failing people. This is God changing people. God rewiring them. Verse 10, The Lord hath poured out upon you the spirit of deep sleep. The Lord hath closed your eyes. The prophets and your rulers, the seers, hath he covered. Notice the three active verbs and the Lord doing it all in verse 10. 
and it's an event so marvelous that it says in verse 9, stop, stand still and wonder about this tremendous event. We have things going on in America that a few years ago we couldn't have imagined. We didn't imagine the transgender confusion and telling little children, having little children tell us that I think I'm a boy when they're a girl and honoring them and putting them on hormone treatment and so forth and so on. It's God's doing. And we deserve every bit of it in America. He's never done anything that isn't fair. Remember how chapter 28 ended? Which is wonderful in counsel and excellent in working. His strange work and his strange act was punishing Judah militarily like he had punished the Philistines. But there's another act of his, and that's to rewire people like Romans chapter 1 teaches. This is a cross-reference for Romans chapter 1, and Romans chapter 1 is a cross-reference for this. This is comparing spiritual things with spiritual. This is God's work. Where does confusion come from? He is the author of confusion. When the Bible asks the question in 1 Corinthians 14, is God the author of confusion? And the answer is an obvious no. It's referring to his assemblies. That he didn't want them running amok with a bunch of people speaking in foreign languages that visitors could not hear. And that didn't benefit those that were there because they didn't understand the language. But you get outside an assembly, he is the author of confusion. He was the author of confusion at the Tower of Babel. And he's the author of confusion right here. And he's the author of confusion in Romans chapter 1. I'll give them over to a reprobate mind. And you know what he describes them doing there. They will disgrace themselves with each other's bodies. And they do it. Lord, humble us. We see verse 13. And we do draw near you with our mouths. And with our lips we do honor you. But our heart is all yours. And our fear towards you is that we want to keep your word, every word of it. Verse 9, stop looking, consider the incredible thing. 10, because God's made them stupid and asleep. 11, the vision, spiritual revelation, divine revelation has become like a book that can't be opened and can't be read. It doesn't matter who they give it to. There's no one that can help them know the will of God. Verse 13 continues the, gives us the explanation because of their hypocrisy, which we don't want to have. Verse 14, what he's going to do. Therefore, I'll do a marvelous work, a marvelous work and a wonder. The wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hid. The ones that were known for wisdom, the ones that had the answers, the ones that taught the Bible, the ones that went to seminary for the Bible, they couldn't even recognize Jesus Christ. He said to them, you can figure out the weather tomorrow by the sun, but you don't know that the Son of God is standing in front of you with all the miracles he's performed and a timed prophecy in Daniel 9? How does that happen? Jesus, in Matthew chapter 11, he looks at his audience and it strikes him that he's got this crowd of seminary graduates over here, Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, Levites, priests, the works. And he knows what they're thinking about him. And he's got this group of eager ex-prostitutes and publicans, tax collectors in front of him. And they love what he's preaching. Right. What does he do about it? Oh, I've got to change my message. Boys, 
let's go out for a meal afterwards, and I'll talk to you on your level. Did he say anything like that to the Pharisees? No. no, he lifted up his eyes to heaven, and he said, Father, I thank thee, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and revealed them unto babes. Amen. Even so, Father, because it seemed good in thy sight. Right. Look around you. Do you want to see something good in God's sight? I speak respectfully. I put me first. Look at us idiots. And we, we know the things of God. We know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And we love the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Verse 15, Woe unto them that try to hide from me. 16, Your turning of things upside down shall be esteemed as the potter's clay. Do you know what God thinks of all that stuff going on today? He tells you right there in that verse, you're turning of things upside down. They're turning the world upside down, morally, maritally, sexually, child training-wise. They're turning the world upside down. It shall be esteemed as the potter's clay. This is as if you said to me, you stupid idiot that made me, you didn't make me right. And what clay says that to its potter? What clay raises up, rises up off the spinning wheel and spits at the potter? You know, I've told you what you do with that clay. You drop it in a five-gallon pail and add water. Then throw it out in the sewer. This is talking, because you're turning things upside down. I've given rules, and you're living hypocritically. It's like you're questioning me that, you didn't, that I didn't make you. It's like you're questioning me that I didn't have any, any understanding in the rules that I've given you. It's terrible. It's despicable. The arrogant rejection of a creator God and his right to tell us how to live and his right to claim our passion. Well, I think he's got the right to tell me how I ought to worship him, but does he really have the right to tell me that how much I'm supposed to love him? Shouldn't love be just voluntary? Does he have to command it? Well, he commands it this way. This is the first commandment. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy strength, with all thy mind, with all thy soul, with all thy everything. Right. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God. And if you don't want to do it that way, then you are going to be turned upside down and he is going to blind you and ruin your life. And he's right, and he's right to do it. Amen. He's right to do it, and it's marvelous in our eyes. And we look at it, and we see it, and it should cause us to tremble in fear and to call on God to have mercy upon us and turn more perfectly to him. Verse 17. Verses 17 through 24. God's going to recover Judah and the Jews. Back and forth, the prophet goes, all the way through the book of Isaiah, back and forth. This time about uh, Babylon, this time about Assyria, this time about Cyrus the Persian, this time about Judah, this time about Ephraim, this time about Moab, this time about Damascus, back and forth. But here we go, there's mercy. In that day, verse 17, Is it not yet a very little while, and Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field, and the fruitful field shall be esteemed as a forest? 
And in that day shall the deaf hear the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. The meek also shall increase their joy in the Lord, and the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. That is lots of blessing. That is a reversal of fortune of people back to the Lord. That is true revival. Lebanon is a forest. It's going to be turned into a field. A fruitful field is going to be esteemed as a forest. There's going to be a total reversal in the other direction by God's mercy and by His chastening. And was there such an event in the history of Judah when the 185,000 were killed? Yes, there was. I'm going to show it to you in a moment. So there's all these blessings of verse 17. Verse 17 describes reversal. Verse 18 describes it's no longer, knowledge, is, wisdom is no longer hidden, but they see it and they hear it. Verse 19, there's an increase in joy among the poor of the earth. So that doesn't mean it's because of just circumstances. It's joy in the Lord. But notice this other tremendous blessing that comes next. For the terrible one is brought to naught. Scorners. Fools are stupid. Scorners are wicked. Fools are slow and stubborn and silly. Scorners reject messages and hate the message giver, the messenger. Huge difference in the book of Proverbs between a fool and a scorner. These are scorners. The terrible one is brought to naught in verse 20. And the scorner is consumed. And all that watch for iniquity are cut off. Those that look for a man to make a mistake so that they can pick on him that make a man an offender for a word. They'll, they'll ignore 12,000 words, which is my rate of preaching, in at one hour, 12,000 words per hour for a word, and lay a snare for him that reproveth in the gate, and turn aside the just for a thing of naught. These wicked people that try to corrupt, minister, hurt ministers, and corrupt hearers from respecting their ministers, trying to point out little faults, little flaws, and turning people away. Those two verses are powerful verses about scorners, and it identifies what a scorner is. That in 12,000 word sermon, a word that he doesn't like, he'll hold against him and forget the message. And trust me, I'm very gifted at always giving somebody a gaffe, or two, or five, or 10, or 15 in every sermon. God gifted me that way. I know. I'm sorry. I scream about it for 36 hours after every Sunday. Sherry lows and the Lord knows. But I don't know how to change yet. I'm so old now it doesn't matter. So we'll just keep on doing it. But uh, forget about me. I want to talk about this terrible one in verse 20. The Lord turns him into nothing and destroys him. He consumes the scorner. And those that watch for iniquity are cut off. He kills them. He kills those people that want to find a fault in someone to justify themselves and their self-righteousness against a preacher or against a teacher or against a parent that make a man an offender for a word that'll pick on one word, one sentence, one clause out of a long body of presentation. We're all sinners. We can't say everything perfectly. This, the Bible says that Paul said we have this treasure in an earthen vessel. Paul had the treasure of being a gifted apostle in an earthen vessel called his flesh. But they make a man an offender for a word. They lay a snare for him that reproveth. 
someone that goes around and tries to reprove sinners and correct them and get them in the way of righteousness. They lay a snare for them. They try to trap them. Who did they do this the most to? The most righteous preacher there ever was, the Lord Jesus Christ, constantly trying to trap him. And they turn aside the just for a thing of nothing, a thing of naught. They'll turn aside. They'll say, you don't have to listen to that man. Look at he did this once upon a time. So what? Truth is truth regardless. Listen, give me truth from the mouth of Judas Iscariot, and I'll let him baptize me. Do you know how many people he baptized in the New Testament? It doesn't matter. He preached the truth. Right. Truth. No man can preach it perfectly. No reprover. But this is God's blessing. This is revival in a church when this happens. We have three verses, a total reversal in 17. Revelation is now open to, to us in verse 18. Joy is increased in 19. Scorners are gotten rid of in 20 and 21. So that we have a glorious finish to the chapter. There is a reason. Some of you are newer members and you may not know this. Our, one of our favorite psalms is Psalm 144. And in Psalm 144, David prayed twice for God to deliver him. Here's the wording. God, rid me of strange children. Whose mouth speaketh vanity, they're liars, and their right hand is a right hand of falsehood. Twice. Verse 8 and verse 11. So that our sons and our daughters can grow up in your kingdom and not have those terrible ones among us. That's why we pray what we pray. God, get rid of strange children. And he's done it faithfully for us for almost 40 years. Faithfully. A large number. Got scorners out from us. Rid us of strange children. It's in the Word of God, and here I want you to see that it's a blessing when God rids us, when God ridded, rid Judah of such men. Do you remember a name of such a man from chapter 22? It starts with S, then H, Shebna. <laughs> yeah, I know why you know, Daniel. Shebna. God got rid of him. He was trouble. The Lord got rid of him. Thank you, Lord. Therefore, verse 22, thus saith the Lord who redeemed Abraham. God redeemed Abraham from a family of idolaters. The Bible tells us that about Abraham. God redeemed Abraham from all sorts of military trouble when he was in the land of Canaan. He delivered him from famine. He delivered him from the king of Egypt. He delivered him from the king of the Philistines. He delivered him from four kings from Mesopotamia. He delivered Abraham. He redeemed him. Lord, therefore, thus saith the Lord, who redeemed Abraham, the father of the Jews, concerning the house of Jacob, the Lord has this to say, Jacob shall not now be ashamed, neither shall his face now wax pale. He's not going to be ashamed of being a drunkard. Remember? All tables are full of vomit. Because God's going to correct them, and he has corrected them, by the Assyrians. Pray, let's not have to wait for the Assyrians to come to correct us. He's no, wine is a mocker. They were drunkards. Excess of wine. They would no longer be ashamed and they would no longer get pale because they wouldn't be afraid. There would be no enemies and there wouldn't be drunkenness. God is going to heal the nation. And he did. And so the God of Abraham, the Lord who redeemed Abraham, said, Jacob, that is the, what's, the, what's Jacob's other name? Just to help me out a little bit. Israel. Oh. So he's the father of the Israelites. Oh, okay, okay. Jacob, 
Jacob had his name changed to Israel because his 12 sons were the 12 tribes of Israel. And they would no longer be ashamed nor afraid. But when he seeth his children, the work of mine hands, what makes the difference? What brings about repentance? Do you know that people can be crushed and beaten and they will curse God? The book of Revelation describes men for the heat that God's going to send as cursing God. What makes the difference? He does a work in them. The work of his hands. Verse 23 tells us, When he seeth his children, when the Jews see the revival in their nation, the work of mine hands in the midst of him, that is in the midst of Jacob, in the midst of the nation, they shall sanctify my name and sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and shall fear the God of Israel. Every bit of changed life in each of you gives us great joy to praise God for His work in your lives. Every time one of our children show us zeal for the Lord Jesus Christ, zeal for the Word of God, show us a conscience that is humble and submissive to Him, it causes us to think just like verse 23, they shall sanctify my name because He gets all the glory. He gets all the glory because they are the work of His hands. And that is what we look for in this church, is the work of His hands. How is your life changed? If your life isn't changed, you're not saved. Prove me wrong. We love to see a changed life. And it's the work of mine hands. Regeneration, conversion at its deepest levels are of God. They also that erred in spirit shall come to understanding, and they that murmured shall learn doctrine. These problem Jews that we've been reading, having to read about today, they're going to come to understanding. They're going to learn doctrine. They're going to be full of joy. They're not going to be ashamed anymore. They're not going to do shameful things. They're not going to be afraid anymore because God's chastening is not going to be over their heads. The book, the book, the Bible is going to open up to them and they're going to be able to understand things because their eyes will no longer be closed. That is the recovery. Let me close with Isaiah 10 that I've promised to read to you. We'll close with Isaiah 10, a few verses here, because I want you to see that what interpretation I just gave you of that recovery, they didn't have to go to Babylon for it. They would go to Babylon for it in another hundred years. They would because of Manasseh and other terrible kings. Isaiah 10. Do you know what Isaiah 10 is about? Does verse 5, the first two words, help? O Assyrian, the rod of mine anger. Remember? He's the one over here in verse 15. Shall the axe boast itself against him that heweth therewith? Okay, are we on the right event? Sennacherib and the Assyrians. Here we go. Verse 19. And the rest of the trees of his forest shall be few that a child may write them. What's happened so that the forest of Sennacherib is so small a child can write it? The angels killed 185,000. It shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel and such as are escaped of the house of Jacob, there's the house of Jacob, shall no more again stay upon him that smote them. They're not going to look to Assyrians or Egyptians or anyone for help, but shall stay upon the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth the remnant shall return even the remnant of jacob unto the mighty god this is not a return from babylon to jerusalem 
This is a return from trusting idols and from trusting other nations to trusting God. And we went through this, and I preached this to you before. This is the revival that took place under Hezekiah. They learned the lesson by hearing Assyrians with stammering lips and another tongue in their land, taking their fence cities. This is what we want. Brethren, we've started out with the Lord, I, the Lord, am your shield and your exceeding great reward. Is that true of you today? Isaiah 27 and verse 5. What is your crown of glory? What is your diadem of beauty? What is your spirit of judgment? What is your strength of battle? Is it all the Lord? Do you go forth every day in His might? Do you go forth every day to please Him? Are you living according to His commandments? Or is your fear taught by the precept of men? Let us honor Him with our lips, have our hearts match it, and obey Him by His rules and precepts, not our own. He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us because He has set a stone in Zion, a chosen, precious and a cornerstone, and he'll never leave us. You keep your hands around the ankles of the Lord Jesus Christ and love and live for him. Everything will be fine and better. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.